show. I hope that you had a great holiday season. I definitely had a good one. It was nice to um, to just be quiet for a while, to not talk. Uh, I had a Sunday off. I uh, wasn't doing any podcast, and uh, so yeah, it was great to have a little break. But I am now back and ready to go. So, so much so that I've got a opening rant that I've got to share. It might take a little time, so we're not doing an interview today. Uh, some have asked, "Hey, Luke, are you do the interviews again?" Of course I am. Of course we're going to do interviews again. We got plenty lined up. We've got uh, Father Greg Boyle uh, out in uh, Southern California. Some of you've heard of him. He's a homeboy minister. I think that's his thing. Uh, he's got something on Netflix he's working on, uh, or he's a part of. And um, so we'll have him on. Uh, some of you might be familiar with the Instagram feed, Black Liturgies, uh, working on setting something up with uh, with Cole, with her about that. Uh, we've got Scott Erickson coming back on. We've got Ian Cron lined up. So we've got uh, a bunch of interviews and more that we'll have for you as the year matriculates on, Lord willing. But now... I got a little rant I want to do, and um, here's a question I get a lot, and there's different ways that people ask the question or or make a comment about it, but it's the subject matter of having a wide swath of opinions on the podcast, a diverse cornucopia of perspectives that are shared in this very podcast. Some wonder... Luke, how come you don't, uh, quote-unquote, correct them? Or how don't you tell them, you know, what's up? Others say, hey, I appreciate the nuance. Uh, it is, um, you know, something that they really like about the podcast. And so everyone's got a lot of opinions on that. And uh, I want to talk about it for a second. But before I get to that, let me tell you what's wrong with America. In our country, it seems that we have gotten very comfortable with letting amateurs make a sweeping indictments about the entire country. So I'm going to join into that group and tell you something as a analogy to the podcast. One of the things that appears to have happened with our country is that we have replaced love of our country with loyalty to our party. We have replaced the idea of patriotism with partisan political preferences. And what I mean by that is in Years past, I can imagine, I haven't been around that long, uh, 40, so I guess I have been around somewhat long, um, that there was an attitude that we love our country and that transcends and supersedes the political divisions that we have. And so we might not agree on something, but we have a higher commitment than to our political party. And so when there are diverse opinions, when there's a heated debate, we all come back to the same point that we love our country. Now, what happens is if you really care about our country and you care about justice and progress happening in our country, it means you're committed to your party. Or if you're a real patriot, you vote a certain way. And what we've done is we've watered down love for country and we've replaced it with loyalty to party which really does a great job of inspiring people to be politically active with their party. But what it does a terrible job of is creating unity in the congregation, unity in the entire country. When When you superimpose a higher calling into a lower calling, what happens is ultimately the higher calling is always going to be troubled and broken. And so what would be great in our country is if we could have politicians who come together because there is a greater good than just their political party. Now, what I think that means 
for the church is the church has a unique ability to be a witness to the larger country and show the country what it means for us to be unified even when there's political diversity. Because as Christians, we have, uh, in the words of Whitney Houston, a higher love that can allow us to be rallied around. And so when it comes to the uh, podcast, what I hope to model is this idea that there is a higher commitment that transcends the differences of opinions that we have on some of these secondary issues. And this isn't something that I always used to, uh, to do. I would say it was probably at its zenith in my 20s, but I was always looking for corrections. When I would see someone, I'd think, oh, this is what they're doing wrong, or this is how they understand something wrong, or this is a misuse of scripture, this is a bad way to preach something. And I was constantly nitpicking the inconsistencies that someone had with my ideological uh, worldview. In my 20s, I was always looking for corrections. Something's happened, but by the time I got into my mid-30s, when the podcast was going on, I stopped looking as much as, I stopped looking so much for corrections with others and instead started to look for connections with others. Something shifted in me that caused me to move past this obsession with trying to correct other people and instead I found myself wanting to connect to other people. And that didn't happen before uh, like the spiritual journey I went on in my late 20s and early 30s when I realized that this sort of like nitpick, always correcting other people sort of like spirituality like just was bankrupt for me. It, like it didn't lead me to a place that I found life in it. I didn't feel like I was living in connection with the spirit of God in my life. Like it, it just wasn't working for me. And so something happened, but in my late thirties, it was now like, I, I, the question I'm looking for with other people is like, what is the connection I have with them? But like, you, you can't, you can't do this unless you have trust, right? Like you, you might have remembered this couple in like high school or college, or maybe it's some of you right now. I hope it's not. But you have like the the boyfriend or the girlfriend who is always like anxious about what the other one is doing. Like they go out with their friends and they're like, "Oh, well, who'd you talk to? Who is there?" Or or maybe like they'll roll up in their car and they'll sit in the parking lot and see who they're talking to through the window. Or more likely, like whenever the significant other is gone or maybe it's like a a spouse and they go take a shower and all of a sudden like you you go grab their phone and you like rush through all their messages and you look at their texts and you look at the emails that they sent because you're just really concerned about what they're doing because ultimately what you're lacking is trust you don't trust them so you're insecure about whatever voices that they're listening to And if you have trust, all of a sudden you develop a level of confidence where you are not as anxious and uptight about every different perspective that's, that's shared, right? Like the, the podcast that I think I've received the most like negative feedback about was one, uh, it was a couple years ago and I bet, uh, I don't know, I would assume probably you're not going to guess which one it is, but it was a podcast I did with a musician from Bethel. Uh, his name was Brian. It's still the same name. I, he hasn't changed his name that I know of. Brian um, Johnson, I think. His dad is the founding pastor of Bethel. Bethel. And like the reason I want to have like the podcast with this guy is, you know, if you read my first book, like I started like the opening chapters, like me talking about how I can't sing. 
And it talks about like my conflicted relationship with music in the church and specifically like worship music and how I've like just had a tough time with it. And so when there's a chance for me later in life to like talk to a guy who's, you know, written or behind a lot of the songs that we sing in churches, like, of course, I'm going to take that opportunity to talk to him. Now, do I agree with everything that Bethel does? <laughs> Obviously not. But the question that I see myself trying to answer is what does it mean for Christians living in a pluralistic society to live not isolated from everyone else, but engaged with everyone else? When I was younger, one of the questions that I heard a lot about people outside of like my tribe, the Church of Christ, is like, are those people safe to listen to? Is it safe to read that book? Is it safe to hear what they have to say? And there was a real anxious presence that if we just listen to them, all of a sudden we're going to you know, fall off and out of being a disciple of Jesus. And it, like, it comes from the mentality that I heard from, uh, I mean, it's my own grandpa used to say, um, that worshiping with the Methodists or the uh, Episcopalians is equivalent to worshiping with the Canaanites in the Old Testament. Like that's the sort of like, like fear-based, anxious presence that people had towards others around them. And one of the things that, like, we're living in a world now where you can hear any and everyone, like, with few clicks on your computer or your phone, and all of a sudden you get to experience, like, what other people are saying. If you're on Twitter, for goodness sakes, you you constantly see people, like, they're off often just dunking on one another and like they'll retweet someone who they disagree with and then have this pithy response that destroys our argument or so it proposes to do. And so those ideas are like, they're always around us and those voices are always around us. And so the question that we have to uh, answer is like, what does it mean for me to be a faithful person in the presence of people with a lot of different ideas? And for me, I think what that looks like is, is hospitality and looking for connections. And for, for me as like a follower of Jesus, I think the highest thing is like you're asking do these people believe that Jesus is Lord? Do they, do they love God and do they love people? Do the you know, Orthodox historic creeds that, that Christians have been connected to for thousands of years, like, does, is that something where you guys can find common ground? Like, those are important things to ask, but a lot of things that we debate over right now are, are nowhere to be found in any of those sort of like filters. And so I, I think part of what we need to learn how to do is to to be hospitable and to have like this higher love and a higher commitment that enables us to make space for differences of opinions in conversation. Now, obviously, there's a difference for me in like preaching something compared to like doing a podcast when I'm preaching like I'm like, this is what I think. And, and for the most part, like when you're part of a church, like you don't use a sermon as a soapbox for your own personal opinions. And so obviously there are certain things that I curtail out of respect and deference for the larger congregation that I'm a part of. But like in, um, like hopefully that made sense. Like just because you're a pastor doesn't mean like you say everything that you think, unless you want to be like a Mark Driscoll sort of like ranting style preacher, which I guess there's, you know, a lot of that out there, but, um, you know, that's a whole other sermon um, for another time. But um, for the most part, like if you're part of a church, like you're submitting to like being a part of a, a, like a larger group of people than just yourself. And so to use that, like to, to just do whatever rant you want to do uh, in place of actually like a, a, a sermon, which has substance and, and weight and has deference to like the wider witness of scripture and the authority of, you know, Christians throughout the years, like, yeah, you're not going to do that. But for the most part, what I'm trying to say is, there's a difference like in those spaces 
And we need to be able to live in those spaces because most of us, our interactions are not sermons. Like you're not giving a monologue to someone, but instead we're living in in dialogue with people. And so we need examples, we need models, we need people who are trying to set a precedence for what that looks like. And, and ultimately, like that's one of the gifts I'm trying to give through the podcast of what does it look like to model that sort of conversational humility and relational humility with people that have indifference of opinion with you. And if we can't do that, then my goodness. Like there's one prayer that Jesus prayed for those who would believe. In John's gospel, in John chapter 17, Jesus says, my prayer for those who would believe is that they would be one as you and I, as Jesus and the Father are one. His prayer for us is that we be people of unity. When unfortunately, we become people of division. We haven't kept the unity of the Spirit. We have actually worked against the unity of the Spirit because we have become far more divided than united. And I hope to be a a voice of someone who's trying to say there's another way to do that. So um, that is the rant for today. And uh, now I got a sermon I want to share with you. I actually preached it just um, a couple days couple days ago. It was my first sermon in 2022. It's a sermon on forgiveness, and it was a, a cold day, so I think I opened, you know, shaming people who didn't come because it was too cold outside. So uh, all that stuff about like unity, like I just threw out the window for a cheap laugh to be in the sermon. So you know, no one's perfect. I definitely am not. You guys already know that. But thanks for listening. Thanks for checking in in with us as we start 2022. And um, without further ado, here is me talking some more. Uh, If you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 6 is where we are going to be this morning. Let me tell you something. 2022, it is our new year, but it is also a special year, especially for Westover. Because 50 years ago, this church began. This is the anniversary, 50, 50th anniversary of the beginning of the Westover Hills Church of Christ. And is, yeah, amen. And we celebrate that because we remember the same God who planted this church 50 years ago continues to be at work and continues to lead us into new places where we can continue to share the love of Jesus. And so you're going to hear us talking about that more throughout the year, but it's something I wanted to make sure you knew right up front. This is a special year for our church. Now, if you're visiting this morning, this is your first time here. If you're watching online for the first time, thank you for being with us. If you are watching online uh, because you're sick or you have some reason you can't be here, we thank you for worshiping online. If you're watching online because you were too cold this morning, no, no, it doesn't count, okay? I'm just telling you, uh, we forgive you, but we see you, okay? We see you. Uh, we're going back to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we spent uh, 10 weeks in the fall, and uh, 10 weeks wasn't enough. We have five more texts from the Sermon on the Mount that we want to get to, and so we're going to start that uh, this morning. So if you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to be. But as we begin, let me tell you a story. It's, it's actually not my story. It's an author named Stephen Pressfield. Uh, he wrote a book called The Legend of Bagger Vance. It became a movie. Some of you might have seen the movie. Some of you might have read the book, uh, miraculously. Some people still read books. Um, I'm still bitter about that. No. Um, and in his book, The Legend of Bagger Vance, there's this main character who is a golfer. And at this climactic moment, he is at the end of this match, and he has his two rivals neck and neck with him. And he bends down because there is something that's kind of impairing his ability to, to put his ball in. I don't play golf, obviously. You can hear me not talk about golf very well. And he starts to adjust this little pebble that's next to his ball, and he accidentally brushes up 
and his ball moves just microscopically. But he calls a foul on himself. And he admits, I, I accidentally bumped my ball. And what happens is, on this last hole, he accidentally brushes his ball, costs him a stroke, and he ends up not winning the match. His two rivals tie him, and he doesn't win. Because he does the right thing. And you watch that story, you read that story, you listen to that story, and you go, wait a minute, he, he did the right thing. He shouldn't be penalized for doing the right thing. But we all know that's how life works. It's not just a story. It's not just something that's made up. It's, it's a reality that you've probably experienced. I had a friend when I was younger, and um, he made some mistakes, some serious mistakes, some criminal mistakes. And he had loving parents who gave him advice to just fess up to what you did. And so he's talking to the police, telling them what he did. And they knew some of what he did, but based on the advice of his loving parent, he is talking to the law enforcement officers, and he tells them everything that he did. And because of that, the consequences that he was going to experience grow substantially. Because he did the right thing. He, he told them what they didn't know, and he was punished for it. I mean, he did the wrong thing, but he got more consequences for doing the right thing. And unfortunately, that's how life seems to work. Because what you sow is what you're going to reap. Right? What Newton told us, the third law of motion, every action has an opposite and equal reaction. Like you do something and something comes right back at you. That's how life works. I teach my, my daughters that there are consequences. If you do something, something else is going to happen because of it. They can be good consequences or they can be bad consequences, but what you do reaps a reward. And we all know this. That's how life works. That's how the world works. But in the midst of that, there's God. And there's a different reaction. There's a different consequence. There's a different way of existing because God steps into the natural way that life works. Not too long ago, there was an interview with the lead singer of U2, his name is Bono. Bono's a deeply religious man, and he says this about this whole experience of how God interrupts the natural way that life works. Let me read this quote to you from Bono. Bono says, it's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it, and yet along comes this idea called grace to upend all that as you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know that who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religious religiosity. Grace is this interruption, this idea of forgiveness as that what you do isn't always what you receive. That the consequences that you deserve are not what you receive because God interrupts the natural way of the world with forgiveness. And this is who God has always been. 
That God is this divine interrupter for the way that things work. When God is first creating the covenant that God has with the Jewish people, a covenant is about to be struck and God is going to appear in the middle of this covenant ceremony. And as God appears, God gives God's name this way. This is from Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God passes before and reveals God's identity, and God's identity is the one who forgives. In a world in which every action has an opposite reaction, God appears and says, no, there is a different reaction with me. God shows up in a world that says, what you sow is what you're going to receive. God says, no, what you will receive is forgiveness. Years later, the psalmist will write these words about God's love. In Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name, bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. And then the psalmist goes on to say, as far as the east is from the west, so God has removed us from our transgressions. From the very beginning, God was the one who interrupts the way the world usually works and offers forgiveness. That's who God is. But unfortunately, people like you and me who follow God don't always act like God. Unfortunately, people like you and me who, who wear the name of God as God's people don't give out the same forgiveness that God gives. And it's to that very phenomenon that Jesus speaks these words in the Sermon on the Mount to people who don't always extend the same forgiveness that God extends. And so if you're physically able, we're going to read this text from Matthew 6 from uh, Scripture. So if you're physically able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Jesus says, pray then in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Jesus building upon this century-old understanding that God is the one who forgives, says, but if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus continues this understanding that God is the one who forgives, but now says, if you don't do that, this is what happens to you. Years ago, Barbara Brown Taylor was leaving the church that she worked at in Georgia. She was uh, retiring from that part of her life. 
And as she did that, there was consequences that one of the priests who worked at the same church would probably end up losing his job because she was stepping away from working at this church. And she realized that she had kind of done this younger priest wrong by her decision. What she did was going to hurt him. And so she felt really bad about the consequences that she created for this younger guy. And so she, she had this hard conversation that maybe some of you have had a conversation like it, where you have to show up to someone and admit, I did wrong to you. And she was kind of anxious about how he was going to respond to her. Uh, but this is what she writes about that situation when he actually forgave her. She says, salvation is not something that happens only at the end of a person's life. Salvation happens every time someone with a key uses it to open a door he could lock instead. She said, this is what it's like for me. Like, he, he had the ability to say, you were wrong, and I'm going to hold this against you. But instead, he holds this key and uses it to unlock a door and say, no, no you can come back through to this world of forgiveness. Salvation is this receiving this forgiveness and being opened up to, to another way of life. When Jesus talks about not forgiving others in verses 14 and 15, Jesus said, when you try to lock the door and not let someone through this, there are consequences for you. Because what happens when you think you're locking the door for someone else, it's actually you that is also being locked out. There's an English priest named George Herbert who said it this way. He said, he that cannot forgive others breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass if he would ever reach heaven. For everyone has need to be forgiven. Both of them are describing the same idea that we have to go from this world that tells us what you sow is what you're going to reap. That every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And get to the kingdom of God where, where there is forgiveness. And when you choose to not forgive others, you're burning the bridge. You're, you're locking the door. You're shutting off the faucet where forgiveness is no longer being accessible to someone. But what we don't understand is the person that no longer has accessibility to forgiveness is not them, but it is you. When I think I'm not giving forgiveness to someone else, you are right. You are preventing someone from receiving forgiveness. It's just not the person you think it is. You're burning the bridge that you need to go over. You're locking the door that you need to go through. You're turning off the faucet to receive what you need. It's not the other person who's in as much trouble as it is you. And Jesus tells a story like this. Jesus tells this parable later in Matthew's gospel. In this parable, there is a servant who owed his master millions and millions of dollars. The servant is called before the master. The master acknowledges the situation. And the servant realizes that he should go to jail where he will work to pay off this debt up a debt that he could in no way ever work off in prison. And so he pleads for forgiveness. And the master says, you know what? You owe me millions of dollars. I'm just going to forgive it. 
And so the servant leaves the master after receiving this forgiveness. And on his way home, servant number one encounters servant number two, who owes him thousands of dollars. Just a couple thousands of dollars. And he sees this servant. And so servant number one looks at servant number two and says, you know what? I'm going to throw you in prison until you pay off your debt. And then there are other servants who see what servant number one did to servant number two and says, this isn't right. And so they go back to the master and tell them the whole situation. And then Jesus finishes the story this way, Matthew 18. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, you wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. If you think, you know, I can be forgiven by God and then not forgive others, your outcome is not going to be good. Sometimes we think the story of what God has done is very similar to what the first servant does. We think the story is, I go before God, God forgives my debt, and I can go on with my life. Because we think what happens is we, we get baptized, we say the prayer, we do the right thing, we're in church... And so we receive, for our good performance, a good product. Because I was baptized, now I receive the product of forgiveness, and I can go on with my life. That's what the first servant did. But really, what you do in the waters of baptism is you die to yourself and make Jesus Lord of your life. And the product is not some forgiveness that you receive. The product is that Jesus is your Lord. And when Jesus is your Lord, the byproduct is forgiveness. Sometimes we've confused the product with the byproduct. The real thing that we are experiencing in the waters of baptism is an acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord. And because Jesus is Lord, we no longer live in a world in which every action has an opposite and equal reaction. We no longer live in a world in which what you sow is what you receive. We no longer live in a world in which consequences are the final word. Instead, we live in a world in which Jesus is king, in which Jesus gives us forgiveness. And that is the byproduct of Jesus being the Lord of our life. And so when Jesus talks about forgiveness, of course Jesus says, if you don't forgive others, you're missing something. You're no longer walking on a bridge that you need to be on. You're no longer having your door open that you need to go through. You're no longer receiving what happens when I'm your king? And so this isn't going to work out well for you. He says, if you don't forgive others, then of course you're not going to receive forgiveness. Because you're not making Jesus your Lord. You just think Jesus is some product that you can get to fix a need. When Jesus wants to be the Lord of everything. Jesus wants a new way of living to be born out of him being Lord of your life. And when you see it, and when you see this lived out, you realize this, 
This is something sacred because these people have dedicated their life to Jesus. You see these examples. You go, something is unique here. And Lancaster County, which is just outside of uh, Philadelphia, uh, October of 2006, uh, there was a, a milkman from outside the Amish community who worked for the Amish community, served the Amish community, uh, went into the Amish community, went into this single room schoolhouse that they had with a gun and opened fire and took the lives of many young kids and also his own. This happened October 2nd, 2006, and before it had even become October 3rd, someone from the Amish community went to this person who had just murdered the Amish community's kids, went to this person's house, and told the now deceased gunman's family that we do not see you as the enemy, but you are a fellow victim who has lost a child. A few days later, uh, that family was burying the gunman, and 30 members of the Amish community gathered around the family to create a human shield so that the media would not interrupt their grieving. That happened in October. In December, the widow of this man was diagnosed with cancer. One of the young girls who survived the shooting went over to her house after she was diagnosed with cancer and began to clean her home as a way of expressing love. At Christmas time, uh, this Amish community, which typically is not getting in motorized vehicles, got in a school bus and drove over to the gunman's widow's home and sang Christmas carols. Because this group of people, as much as they're known for their lack of participation in modern technology or their basic lifestyle, with, which has nothing to do with a lot of the frills of life that we are used to, they really should be known for something more than that. Because these are people who live this way of forgiveness. They don't live in a world in which every consequence is met by its rightful Reaction. They live in the way of Jesus. Uh, let me introduce you to another lady who's like that. Uh, this woman is um, Mary Johnson, and uh, in this picture, she's with her son. Uh, February of 1993, Mary was at work. She got a phone call from a friend who asked if her son had come home from work the night before, and Mary says, no, I, I, I don't think he did, and the person on the phone call said, um, I have some really bad news for you. Uh, soon after, Mary was downtown at the police department where she was IDing her son's body. Her son was murdered, um, and the person who murdered her son was a 16-year-old kid named O'Shea Israel. Mary was angry, as anyone would be. Uh, she's at the court while O'Shea is um, being sentenced. 
this 16-year-old kid, O'Shea, is being uh, tried as an adult for first-degree murder uh, while she's in court watching her son's gunman, um, she finds out that the judge has dropped him from being first-degree murder to second-degree murder, and that switch caused anger and resentment and animosity to build up in her that, for some reason, wasn't there before. That was just a switch that flipped in her mind. Uh, O'Shea is sentenced to 25 years in prison, and for the next However long, Mary was consumed with anger. And a few years later, she'd already run off friends with her resentment, and she had built up so much rage and bitterness that people just didn't want to be around her. And she read a poem about two mothers who lost sons. The first mother lost a son because he was murdered, and the second mother lost a son because he committed murder. And Mary has something happened to her. And Mary decides, I need to go meet O'Shea. Mary's never even been to a prison before in her life, and so she's just nervous about being on the premises. She goes there, and she sits across the table from O'Shea, and she says, I do not know you, and you do not know me. My son did not know you, and you did not know him. So we need to lay a foundation of knowing each other. For the next two hours, she sits and talks with O'Shea, and she sees in his eyes genuine repentance. And she says to him, I, I forgive you. At the end of two hours, O'Shea asks if he can give her a hug. And so Mary stands up and gives the murderer of her son a hug, and then he walks out of the room, and she just falls over, she bends over, and she says in that moment as she's stooped over after hugging the murderer of her son, she feels something from the soles of her feet all the way up just leave her, and it was that bitterness, and animosity, and anger, it was just gone, but her commitment to loving O'Shea did not leave. And so she stayed in his life. In 2010, some 17 years after he had murdered her son, Mary threw a... She, she threw a party to welcome O'Shea back home. And then O'Shea moved in next door to her in the suburbs of Minneapolis. And now she calls O'Shea her spiritual son. That's what I should have said. This is Mary with O'Shea Israel, her spiritual son. I don't need to say it, but let me just connect the dots officially. Yes, Mary is a woman who follows Jesus. Mary is a follower of Jesus. Richard Houston, up in the Metroplex, for 21 years was a police officer for the Mesquite PD. In December, he went out on a call and was shot and killed in the line of duty. Uh, his daughter, 18-year-old Shelby, at the Lake Point Church in Rockwall, Texas, spoke at his funeral back in December 
And this is what she said. I remember having conversations with my dad about him losing friends and officers in the line of duty. I have heard all the stories you can think of, but I've always had such a hard time with how the suspect is dealt with. Not that I didn't think there should be justice served, but my heart always aches for those who don't know Jesus. Their actions being a reflection of that. I was always told that I would feel differently if it happened to me. But as it's happened to my own father, I think I still feel the same. There has been anger, sadness, grief, and confusion. And part of me wishes I could despise the man who did this to my father. But I can't get any, of, any part of my heart to hate him. All that I can find is myself hoping and praying for this man to truly know Jesus. I thought this might change if the man continued to live. But when I heard the news that he was in stable condition, part of me was relieved. My prayer is that someday down the road, I'd get to spend some time with the man who shot my father. Not to scream at him. Not to yell at him. Not to scold him. Simply to tell him about Jesus. The word of the Lord. Jesus says, if, if you don't forgive others as your heavenly Father has forgiven you, then you're lost. And the way of forgiveness is not something that you can just choose to receive and then go on with your life, but simply as if nothing happened. But instead, forgiveness is something you receive when you make Jesus Lord of the entire bit of your life. And when you understand that, it naturally pours out to you in big and in small ways. That is the witness of Christianity. That is the witness that we are called to give to the world. How is the world to see forgiveness but through us? As we've been praying the Lord's Prayer uh, during this series, uh, you might notice that we, we say debts instead of trespasses. And there's a long history of Christians using the word trespass instead of debts, and, and, and I get that. The way I understand the text, I think debt probably is more accurate in my opinion. And part of the reason is because there is this financial undertone, like it's a financial image. The same way that Matthew 18, the, the servant owes his master a large financial debt. I think that's fitting because forgiveness, it always costs you something. If you're going to forgive someone, it's going to cost you something. You can't just say it flippantly and assume that it's just going to happen. It's, it, it costs you something. Maybe it costs you this narrative that you're the victim, that you've held on to for a long time. Forgiving means that you give up that right to be the victim. Maybe it costs you like the ability to continue to tell the story so that you kind of like recruit people to your side. 
this is what she did to me, and this is what she said about me, and so I'm going to, you know, just, forgiveness costs you that. Forgiveness always costs us something. There was a professor of Amish studies named Stephen Nault who observed what the Amish community did on October, in October of 2006. And he talked about the way that they forgave is that it's unique. And he called it decisional forgiveness. And what is unique in his perspective about the way the Amish community forgives compared to most of us is that it's not the end of a long emotional journey. And then you can finally forgive someone, which would be similar to the story of Mary Johnson in O'Shea, Israel, where she had years and then she was finally able to forgive after she had this like, journey to get there, which is what I've experienced, I'm sure you've experienced as well. But the Amish community has this decisional forgiveness that means that they start and they've already decided this is where they're going. And they might not feel like it, but eventually their feelings are going to catch up to what they've already decided they're going to do. And one of the reasons that Jesus, when he says, when you pray, pray like this, is because it helps us daily make the decision that this is where I'm going. This might be what she said about me, and this is how they might have treated me, and this is what they might have done, but I've already made the decision, this is where I'm going. I pray this prayer with my daughters most nights. A couple months ago, I was talking with one of my daughters, and uh, at night, and she was talking about how you know, one of her friends did something, and I said, well, what are you going to do? What, what do you think you should do about it? I said, well, what do we pray every night? She said, we pray, Father, forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. Well, what does it mean for you to live that out? Because you already prayed this. You've already made the decision. This is where it's going. Maybe eventually your emotions will catch up, but it doesn't matter. You've already crossed the bridge, and so you're going to let someone cross with you. Someone's already opened the door for you, so you're going to keep it open for the next person. You've already received, and so you've already decided that you're going to give it to someone else. And so my question for you this morning is, what do you need to decide? What do you need to make a decision about today that your emotions might not have caught up to you, your feelings might not be there, but you need to decide right here and right now. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to open the door for them. I'm going to keep it open. I'm going to make sure that the bridge is still intact because I've crossed through there to get where I am. So I am sure as heaven going to help them get here too. What decision do you need to make right now? Now, I don't want you to feel like you have to do this on your own. I don't want you to feel like this is just a decision I have to do on my own. I have to take care of this all by myself. We're here to help. Maybe you want to talk to a friend after. Maybe you want to talk to someone from, from the church. Can we get the, uh, the elder text line up on the screen? Maybe you don't want to talk to someone right now, but here's a number. You can text them. One of our elders will receive this, and they're going to text you back. And it might just be a way for you to put your foot in the ground and say, right here and right now, I'm deciding that this is who I need to forgive. Text someone. Talk to someone. I'll, I'll be in the back after you want to talk to me. I'll pray with you about it. But make the decision right here and right now.
Because Jesus said, if, if you don't forgive others, the Heavenly Father's not going to forgive you. Because forgiveness isn't something you hold on to as though it is your product that I can just take with me. No, no, no. It is a decision that I commit to help others receive through me. So did you make that decision? Uh, one of the ways that we make a decision for the direction of who we are is each week we remember the death, ground, resurrection of Jesus. And so if, if you receive the sacraments on the way in, I invite you to grab those right now. And the second, as we receive the body that was broken, the blood that was shed, we remember how we received forgiveness. We, were, we remember the debt that was paid for us to receive forgiveness. And the debt that you received was expansive. The debt that you had was enormous. So whatever debt that someone else has to you, I'd wager it probably cost a little less. So let's remember the forgiveness that we have received so we can forgive others. Let's pray. God, as we're about to receive the body that was broken, the blood that was shed, may we remember the commitment we made in the waters of baptism, that we are dying to ourselves, and that we are giving up the old way and we are giving up the sovereignty of our own life. And we are acknowledging that you are the one who is sovereign. You are the one who is king. And we have entered into your kingdom. And in your kingdom, there is forgiveness. And it's not just for me. And so teach us to give to others. God, I, I have a special prayer for those who are in abusive situations. Especially people who have been abused and have heard this as an excuse for someone to continue to abuse them. And God, I pray that you would protect them from this scripture being misused by an abuser. I pray that you protect them. Because this isn't an excuse to let someone to continue to abuse us. It's not what this is. But God, this is a reminder of what you have done for us. And so now as family, we join together to pray the words that you taught us to pray as we say, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.